This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong. Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. In living color on WTDR. Wow. I mean, some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look. Yes. There's the images. Good. Everybody quiet. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. I can't remember when I've been so moved. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see the individual. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. Against everything in it, I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. My guest this morning is Brad Ricca. He's an award-winning writer and the author of Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, and his latest book is Olive the Lionheart, Lost Love, Imperial Spies, and One Woman's Journey into the Heart of Africa, a story about Olive MacLeod, a young Scottish woman beginning in 1909, over a hundred years ago, who travels to Africa at a time when much of Africa is still unknown to the outside world. It's a story of great courage, but it's also a story of loss and grief, political intrigue, mystery, and magic. Brad Ricca, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me on, Tonio. I really appreciate it. So to begin with, Tell us about Olive McLeod, who she was, and how this story begins with this fellow named Boyd Alexander. 
and then tell us about him. So the story takes place pretty much around 1910, uh, 1911, and at this time Olive was living in London, and she was a woman of means. She was, you know, living with her father and mother. She was 30 years old, but they had some money, and she was, uh, for lack of a, a better word, kind of a socialite. She would go to parties every night, and there's these accounts of dancing till dawn and all these things that young people do that I remember I used to do. And she was 30 years old when our story starts, and she is known for her wit and her red hair. She has very long red hair that she ties up, but everyone seems to love Olive. And she doesn't seem to have any kind of suitors when the story begins, and, and she's 30 years old, so at this point in time, in 1910, she was you know, considered almost to be past that. And then she met this man named Boyd Alexander. And he was an ex-soldier who had become a naturalist. And this was one of the kind of great things. You can still do it today, but I think it was a little easier back then, the ability to switch careers so easily. And he was a very renowned ornithologist. He liked birds, and he would go to Africa and collect birds. And she was introduced to him through a friend who said, let's go to his county estate. He was very rich, and he has a museum up there. And she said, well, I don't know, but that sounds interesting. And she goes, and she meets him, and she finds, you know, he's this handsome British soldier type, but she finds also there's a great um, kind of loss to him, that he lost his brother in Africa and lost friends in his last expedition, and he takes her to see his museum, which turns out to be an outhouse filled with stuffed birds. And she kind of laughs at it initially, but finds it to be a really wonderful place, and she starts thinking, you know, maybe there's more to this guy than she thought. So much of this story is drawn from diaries and mail correspondence that was hidden away for over 100 years. How did you discover this story, and then how did you find those diaries and correspondence? It's just one of those things where one thing leads to another, and it kind of sounds almost supernatural, which is, I think, appropriate for this book, but it's, I almost feel like they kind of found me. Um, I found out about Olive's story, and she had written a book, and there were newspaper accounts, and Boyd had a journal and a book and a diary, and I used those. And I pretty much had the book finished. And all of a sudden, I was just, you know, trying to search for last things, and I found that Olive had these diaries and these letters. And I found them through a, a Scottish database that barely worked. You could almost hear it kind of clunking in the background. They were in a castle on the Isle of Skye in Scotland, and I thought, well, this would be great. I could go there, you know, and I pictured myself on a boat kind of crossing the water there, but I looked it up, and it was like 15 different train rides and, and a couple of boats, and my wife, Caroline, was pregnant at the time, so we thought this wasn't a good idea. So I got in touch with the castle, and I said, hey, I'm working on this book. I'd love to see these diaries and use them. And they said, okay. 
and it sounded like they hadn't been looked at before. And through a very long correspondence, he started sending me copies and bits and pieces of things, and this whole new story kind of unfolded for me, that there was the adventure story of her going through Africa and, and these incredible, incredible things that she does, but there was also the interior world that she was dealing with within herself, within her own mind and her own emotions as she went to Africa searching for Boyd. So talk about some of the correspondence and also the haphazard nature of the male at that time, particularly with someone traveling across Africa. And also their correspondence begins before Boyd Alexander goes to Africa. And there's there's kind of a screwball kind of romantic comedy feel for the way their romance develops. Yeah, I, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way before. That's really wonderful. Because the way the correspondence is, and when you're reading someone else's correspondence from 100 years ago, you feel, you know, initially kind of like an intruder, but it very, very quickly sucks you in and you get very involved with these people. And I read the correspondence, and the first time I read it, it made no sense to me. And then I realized that he was getting things much later than she was sending them, and sometimes she would send three letters when he was in Africa, and then he would get one and respond to the first, and it gets very confusing. So I made a big chart. And eventually I decided that after, you know, a lot of thinking, decided the best way to do it was to just present it as they wrote them because I wanted to show that there was a lot of missed communication in their correspondence. And it it led to, you know, I think bad feelings on, on both sides. And we even have that today, like, oh, did you get that text I sent you? No, it must have got lost. And then, you know, you wonder about that. But there is a comedic aspect to it because back then, you know, people corresponded in letters much more than they do now. I mean, you can make, again, you can make the analogy to texts and and so forth. But after she met Boyd, you know, they started this correspondence and it's very tenuous. He, you know, wants to see her again, of course, and that raises all sorts of questions. But it is a little funny, because at one point they even run into each other on the street, and then they write about it. And it's almost like there was, you get the real sense that there was more to that meeting in the letter about it than in the actual meeting itself. So letters take on these hugely rich depositories of emotion and feeling. Right. In that culture, it wasn't kosher to really express your emotional state in public or in person. So the letters would actually be much more revealing than the actual meeting itself. Right. Like I said, they have this boy talks about he goes back to his club because he forgot some papers on a snowy night and goes by the British Museum and runs into Olive. And then he just stops there. And I was, you know, screaming at the page saying, well, tell me what happened. And then just like you said, I kind of realized that nothing happened. They said hello or said nice to meet you, but what really happened was in the letters afterwards where he says, you know, it was so good to see you, and that's where all the feeling is deposited because it wasn't, just like you said, it wasn't something that was done in real life. So 
he asks her to marry him right before he's about to leave for another expedition to Africa. Right. So what happens from there? Well, he asks her to marry him. And what we find out, and this is, you know, kind of spoiler alerts for those that read the book, but I don't think it's a, a big one. He asks her to marry him, and she says no. And this is kind of a big deal because after Boyd leaves and disappears, all the newspapers are filled with stories that say he leaves behind his fiancée, Olive McLeod, his would-be bride, his beloved, engaged, you know, betrothed, um, all these Victorian conventions. And it turns out they weren't engaged at all. And again, there's two layers to the story. There's the public version, and then there's the kind of private between them where she said no to him because she, in fact, had someone else in the wings that she was not really with. It's, it's sort of confusing, but someone else who had proposed to her, a friend, and she had said no, but his family kind of kept her to it. They said, well, we'll accept your no, but you have to, you know, think about it for six months which I found really disturbing and really interesting that they could exert that much power over someone who says no to an engagement. And this was a friend of hers, so she said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. And they said, in the meantime, you can't bring this up with your friend, um, Mr. Alexander. But as the letters show, she was just you know, falling more and more in love with him. Mm-hmm. And so Boyd Alexander travels to Africa, and they have that haphazard correspondence during which there's lots of misunderstandings and frustration because of the nature of how letters are arriving out of order. And and it was at the end of the book that I really had the sense that this was like a classic screwball comedy setup in a way. But at one point... Boyd stops writing altogether, and she finds out that he's disappeared, or she gets some correspondence from from Africa that he's disappeared, some official correspondence. So how does she decide to go to Africa, and, and how do people respond to the notion of a, of a white woman traveling to Africa at the time? Yeah, that's, I think that was an astonishing, that was a question I had. Um, because all the newspaper versions were she's going, she's consumed by her love for Mr. Alexander, and she's just going to go. But clearly that's not something you just pick up and do. And when I read her diaries, it seems like it was something that she did come up with, though someone else may have suggested it. The diaries at this point are very for lack of a a better term, hazy, because she's going through so much grief. She, you know, doesn't know what happened to Boyd. He's been reported killed. She doesn't know what's happening, and she kind of gets swept up into it. But at some point, she makes the decision that she's going to go. And her father is the one who initially says there's no chance, but then he comes around and pays for the whole thing. (laughs) They hire a couple named the Talbots, and they're experienced explorers. Mr. Talbot has a post in Nigeria, 
and they agree to take her. And they, of course, are being paid, and the British government itself, you know, quite possibly is involved in them going. But at this point, all we have are, are Olive's version of things, and she's just overcome by all this, but she feels the need to go. And indeed, as her diaries reveal, she has a vision of Boyd in Africa telling her to come find him. And there's a newspaper article, one of the earliest I saw, that told that story that said she was pushed on by a vision. And there's this, you know, really great illustration of a ghost, like, pulling her into the jungle. And I just dismissed that when I read that as, you know, yellow journalism or kind of classic let's get more readers to it. But then I read her diaries, and she says she has this vision, and she makes the decision to go. And it's because of money, I think, and because of the government having a hand in wanting them to be there for a variety of possible reasons that I think she is able to go. But it is a remarkable thing that someone who has never traveled there before, who has never done this kind of uh journey is allowed to go and go. A few months earlier, she's not allowed to leave the house because she said no to someone's engagement, but now she's going to Africa. So I think it's a testament to a lot of things, but most of all, it's a testament to her because she does say, I want to go, and she makes it happen. Now, that bit about the British government actually supporting her going, thats that seems quite out of character considering how everybody else is is telling oh you can't go to africa it's way too dangerous for a woman to go to africa and and what about the responsibility that we would have for you you know allowing you to travel in such a dangerous place we we couldn't allow that but you're saying that the british government seemed to to sanction her trip yeah and it's not something i can say with absolute certainty. But there were a lot of red flags that that went up, and and one of the major ones being that you had to get the government's approval to go. And at first it was a flat no, and then the Talbots became involved, and that no turned into a yes. And what they do on the journey is Mr. Talbot continually maps. And what he produces is a really beautiful map of the whole area. And back then, especially at this time, maps were really important for intelligence, for borders, for knowing what the French were doing, knowing what the Germans were doing, knowing where the tribes were, and all these certain personalities. So there's evidence that you know they were sent to do this mapping. And certainly Boyd was doing mapping when he disappeared. And he goes all the way to Darfur, and his map seems to disappear, And because a lot of people want this map. So I think there's evidence that, I mean, they certainly changed their tune and approved her to go, but that maybe there was another reason that they let the Talbots take her, because it's a perfect cover to send a very experienced mapper in Mr. Talbot undercover of the grieving widow looking for her fiancé. So tell us about the territory that they travel. Like, where where did they arrive in Africa, and what was their objective, or what was her objective destination, 
and where do they travel through, and what's the chessboard like? Like you mentioned that there's French and German-held territory. Yeah, that's the other part that makes it interesting, because they travel through all three kind of known territories. You know, they start off in Nigeria, which is British land. And on the map, where is Nigeria? So if you look at the map, and there's a great map that is in the book, actually, when you open it up, I'm actually opening up right now. So all of her journey takes place in Central Africa. So she comes up along the western coast and lands on the lower western coast of the top half of Africa. And she comes into Nigeria, and one of the first ways they travel is on um, steamship up the river, and it's British-controlled, and you see a lot of, you know, what British colonial Africa looked like at this time. But they soon kind of cross the border into Cameroon, and this is more in the center, and that is German. And they're welcomed by all the, you know, the different people, but there's, you can sense some more welcoming than others, and you get to see how the different regions run. And from Cameroon and the Germans, they then cross into Chad, which is French territory. And they do a lot there at different French forts. And there, and to the east of that is the Sudan. And this is Darfur in the Sudan, and this is the uncontrolled area. This is the area that is also up for grabs, and this, this plays a big role in, in the story. So her, her goal, they're going to go to a fort in Chad where the kind of the last news of Boyd was heard, because he was following more or less the same route to go, except he went all the way into Darfur. So how long was this journey, and how, how did the travel? They traveled mostly by foot. I mean, it's about a 3,000-mile journey, which is incredible, obviously, but they travel by boat in the beginning, and then it's mostly foot and by horses. But even that has kind of a big asterisk to it, because even when they're on a horse, they're continually confounded by swamps and cliffs and gorges. It's Africa throws everything she has at these travelers. So it's never really an easy kind of jaunt from one place to another. And that's one thing I found really interesting is they're so adaptable. They can get in canoes or walk or get on horses. And Olive has a, a very strange relationship with her horse. She's convinced that it's trying to murder her. And it seems like it is at some points. But it is a long journey. It is not easy. So most Africans probably had never seen a white woman before Olive showed up. Right. How did they respond to her? And also, how, how did the, you know, the British and Germans and French colonies, how did they respond to having a woman traveling through their, their territory? That's a great question. Um, let me start with that one first. So they're very accommodating because not a lot of women pass through. But it seems they're very accommodating to Olive, and partially because of who she is, but partially because what she finds out along the way and part of her journey is many of them knew Boyd. 
and they will tell her something or she learns something and she starts to find out that maybe the person she met in London was very different here and, and very different from the person she thought he was. But they treat her very well. You know, I get the feeling that there's, I mean, there's obvious reasons for that, but she's also, she asks a lot of them. Like when they, they get to Nigeria, she's like, I need to know how to shoot a gun. And she just goes over to the corporal and, and says, teach me. And he teaches her on a Lee Enfield rifle that he gives her. But they're very accommodating. The natives, I thought there was another thing I read in the papers that she will go places that no white woman has ever been and I thought that sounded like hyperbole, but it absolutely was not. And she gives these really interesting first-person accounts of the natives being mesmerized by her. But the interesting thing is is the way she writes it, and she is a terrific writer. And that's one thing I, I hope people take from the book if they read it. She is a terrific nature writer and kind of travel writer. Um, the natives were more astounded by the color of her hair than anything else. She had the long, very long red hair, and they would continually ask her many tribes they came in contact with to let it down because she would wear it pinned up. And she refused in the beginning because, you know, it didn't seem right. And she finally does it a few times later on at one point to a princess who tells them this kind of terrible story, and she says, may I see your hair? And Olive takes it down, and there's this really wonderful moment of these two women kind of, like, bonding. And she gets kind of a reputation that, you know, word would travel much faster than they could to the next tribe, and they would always look for the woman with the red hair. So... How did they see her, and how did she see them, particularly in relation to the way, you know, the typical um, white European attitude toward yeah. the Native Africans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question, too. So when I first found her story, I said, there's a bigger story here. I know there is. But then kind of the brakes, you know, hit, and I said, do we really need another colonial story or you know, a white savior story or just the same old thing. And luckily, Olive is not that. What I was so astounded by, I mean, I braced myself for, you know, reading the diaries that, you know, the European attitude and racist attitudes towards the natives, but it's just not there in her diaries. And people have asked me, well, did you, you know, just take that out of the book or censor it? And I didn't have to. I wouldn't. But I realized early on that the only way I could tell this story was to just tell it through her eyes. Because I knew, like some of the, the tribesmen and natives they travel with have important roles in the story, but I would you know, try to research them and hit dead ends because there, there was nothing. And I realized this, this was you know, a heavy narrative around her, and I finally you know, thought that's the only way I could tell this story is from her view. And the way she looks at it, I think, is um, she comes into this from the, the British you know, colonial mindset, not too much concerned with politics. I mean, she's heard a lot of bad news from the Congo that's reached London and this sort of thing. But she comes in, 
I think, more concerned about Boyd and more concerned about other things. But the amazing thing about her is once she gets there, it's not this lonely trudge of the widow or the lost woman. Is She just absorbs everything. Every time they meet a new tribe, she walks around to all the different huts or homes and learns and barters with people. She tries to learn the language and gets okay at it. She tries to learn music. She goes there... And while all this colonial pillaging is going on around her and the after effects of it, she's going there and just taking things in. And I really, you know, I really got lucky because I think if she was any other way, I don't think this would be a story anyone would want to read or or one that I would want to write. But it's really astounding to me that she comes in kind of like a, a teacher a little bit, which she was. It's very, very interesting. So you mentioned that she was doing bartering with them. Talk about the practice of trading that they were doing and also the tradition of gift giving with the tribal people and the chiefs in Africa. Yeah, it was really astounding to me. So the Talbots were experienced in this and they would continually try to get artifacts, trinkets, of all types that they would take back to the British Museum. And Mr. Talbot particularly killed a lot of birds for this. He was more concerned with the animals. But Mrs. Talbot would go and try to get actual things from the different tribes, and Olive is fascinated by this. And she kind of learns through her how to barter, what to barter for, and they go on these tours of every village, and you see that everything, there are some things that are similar from village to village, from tribe to tribe, but there are things that are very different, that all of these different places have their own culture, their own beliefs. And this was fascinating to me and fascinating to Olive. So she would try to find things, and often we find her, she looks at something, and she has no idea what it is. She says it's either a bird feeder or some sort of medieval torture device. But she knows she she wants it, and she will barter with money, and she, in the beginning, can't barter at all. And if you know someone who's a good barterer, which is harder in, in this day, but she learns how to do it, and she gets very good at it. And sometimes it's not for money. Sometimes it's for things like colored beads, which we see some of the colonial powers take advantage of that and, and you know ch- exchange beads for labor. But there's a lot of other things she trades for. And some of the people who are selling things try to sell her things she doesn't want, which brings us to the gift giving. So when they would meet a chief of a tribe, there was a sometimes elaborate ceremony of giving a gift and receiving a gift, and sometimes they would get these really, really nice gifts. At one point, a chieftain gives Mr. Talbot a war drum that had been with the tribe for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, whenever it was used in battle, the tribe could not be defeated, and the chief tells him, well, now that the the British are here, we don't need it anymore. But he gives him that. But then the party, Olive and the Talbots, would have to come up with something to give them back. And sometimes they would get food, and sometimes they would get beads, and sometimes they got kind of sick of it, because they would be ready to leave a village, and a chief would come with a, a big gift they would have to go on an official trip back and say thank you and you're the greatest chief in the land and scrounge something up to give him. But the interesting 
end point of all this is in the British Museum today, there are hundreds of things all given by Olive. And if you go and you search it, you can see them all. There's masks, there's, you, there's almost everything you could think of. And it just says Olive McLeod, comma, woman. And, you know, I think with, with this story, I think she's a lot more, but that was one of the main things she did. And I would love for you to tell us about their encounter with this big chief, Gauranga. Yeah. And tell us about who he was and some of the things that they had to go through with him that you, you sort of alluded to just a moment ago. Yeah, so I think about 90% of the tribes they encounter are these amazing experiences of exchange and communication. And that's one thing I wanted to get across in this book is where, you know, her and Boyd, the communication gets really garbled and miscommunication. Sometimes in Africa, most times, they, they go see these tribes and there's a language barrier, there's a cultural barrier, there's all these different barriers, and yet there's an almost seamless communication. And it's backed up by her book and her diaries, so I don't think it's something she's just imagining and making up because there's no reason for her to do so. Um, but there are times where they get into trouble, and one of them is the great Garanga. He's a chief in Chad, and the French had kind of you know, given him this little territory because he had worked with them to defeat a very ruthless chief who had been in the area for years. And he welcomes Olive and the party, and he has a big party for them called the Fantasia with all these horses, and it goes on for hours and hours. And Olive sees some strange things that makes her wonder if this is, you know, a good chief or a bad chief. And he seems very nice, and she always wants to meet the chief's wives. Um, they're always plural. And he says no, and she kind of looks anyway. But... He trades with Mr. Talbot for some serious things. He trades, he has a suit of armor, and he wants Mr. Talbot's gun. So these are, are big items in African currency. And what happens, they're at their camp one night, and a cobra springs out of, I think it comes out of a box and, and almost bites Mrs. Talbot, and indeed spits at Mr. Talbot. And he goes blind. And their French guide says, you know, there are no cobras in this area. So they start to wonder, you know, maybe it's time to leave. And they ask if they can leave, and the chief says no. He wants to give them more gifts. He wants more gifts back, and he wants his armor back, and there's this, this whole political intrigue. Eventually they, they leave, Mr. Talbot's site returns, he goes through many catastrophes on this trip, and that's probably one of the least of them. But they have to go and, and say thank you for more gifts, and they're given some dates by the great Garanga. And the great Garanga is, is a, a character. He sits on a throne at all times, he wears motorcycle goggles, he always has his gun, he has a sword, and he's really this visual warlord character. And they finally, they eat the dates because they can't say no, and they finally leave, and they think they're finally away from this chieftain who kind of held them there against their will. And then they all start to get sick, 
very sick, and they're in the desert at this point, and it begins to become a question of can they get water, and Olive starts hallucinating, and we get to some parts of the story that, you know, why she's there and what she's thinking about, and they come close to dying, and they make it through, but I think the evidence points to that the chief tried to poison them, and then he was going to come back and, and take back the gifts he had given them because later on, Olive sends the dates to a scientist in London who analyzes them and says there could be poison on these. So it was not all goodwill and fellowship. There was serious danger at many points in the adventure. So after this, Olive finds out that Boyd was in fact dead, or, or at least she gets an official report of his death. And though it wasn't a surprise, they knew that it was very likely. How did she respond to the news, and what did they do then? Yeah, so they finally reached this French fort, and, you know, they know that he's gone. But still, she holds on hope, which I think is perfectly reasonable, even though it might not be rational. Um, she holds out hope that he's just going to walk out and say, you know, I'm fine. And they say to her, you know, he was killed in a skirmish right over the border with Darfur, right on the border. And the interesting thing is in all the accounts of it, she has no response to it. And I've had people, you know, reading the book now saying, well, well why doesn't she say anything? Why doesn't she do anything? It's because she doesn't, or she doesn't tell us at least. But the really strange thing about it is they said, well, you know, he's dead, but we found his diaries on the battlefield, and they give them to her. And so not only am I, you know, in the present reading her diaries, but in the past, she is in Africa given the diaries of Boyd Alexander, who she's been told is dead. And so she starts reading them. And what she finds out is that he wasn't maybe the person she thought he was. That there are a lot of things in the diaries that she doesn't comment on. I kind of just present as is because I think they speak for themselves. He beats some of his native servants, and he seems to be on a quest to go to Darfur to stop them from rising up against the British. So there's all this this good stuff, but bad stuff, and I don't think she knows what to do with it, but maybe the most hurtful thing she finds in the diaries that she's not mentioned in them, except for one point he says, must write O.M., and, you know, he doesn't even use her name. So I think that hurt her, certainly, though she does find that he has in the packet that was his diaries and personal belongings, he does have the letters she sent him, which finally reached him. So it occurs to me right now for the first time that maybe that isn't that unusual, that he's not allowing himself to get that interested or obsessed with her, because he's actually out in the field um, exposed to constant risk and danger, and doesn't really have the luxury of, of indulging in any of that. I think absolutely. I think as much as she is kind of hurt by this, I think she understands it. Because the person she knows 
in London as this kind of haunted naturalist of the day, in Africa becomes a complete adventurer slash soldier. And he has very meticulous diaries. And I think at this point, you know, she's more than halfway through her journey, she gets that. So I think that's a terrific point, that she she feels hurt that he kind of left her behind, but I think she gets it, and I think that's why she can ultimately leave him behind. But she doesn't quite do that yet, because there's a, a great mystery around his death and controversy about various stories of how he dies, and she's kind of obsessed with, with that, and, and also very upset by it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it becomes a murder mystery, because there's a few different accounts of it, and they don't agree. And they raise questions of, did someone want him dead? Did Ali Dinar, the warlord in Darfur, the king, who he was going to see, did he want him dead because he wanted to rise up against the British? Or did the French want him dead because they didn't want him to visit this guy? Or was there some way that the British did? Or are these all paranoid conspiracies and he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time? I don't know, but I think like any good mystery, there's so many clues that make you turn away from that last possibility of just being wrong place at the wrong time, that that's what I think sucks all of it. That she wants to know, you know, why was he here? Um, Because he clearly didn't tell her the real reason. But what happened to him? Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that Olive was also going through an inner journey throughout all of this. And you make a couple of cryptic allusions to Olive's real reason for going to Africa. And Olive mentions at one point in her diary that she senses something calling her. And she also goes through a phase where she makes several entries into her diary about wanting to die while she's there in Africa. Could you talk about that and, and how and if any of those fit together? Yeah. I think exactly what I wanted, and I struggled, to be honest, with how to present this, because in the diaries, the first time I read them, it seems very obvious. But I'm not a clinician, I'm not a psychologist. So what I wanted to do was just present what she's going through and see what the reader thinks. I think, and I think you, you know, parsed it, I think, perfectly, is that the possibility exists that that's why she went, that she wanted to die. And again, do I know this for sure? No, because she doesn't, I mean, she does say this a few times, more than a few times. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a professional. But I think back to that older question, you know, why is she so adamant on going? There's a moment when she's writing about, you know, should I go? And then she starts talking about, I could see you again. I could be closer to you. And she starts talking about death. And to me, it, it seemed like this is where she makes the decision. And when you, you know, read about this kind of thinking, when it turns from an idea to something that you see in your head and you see how it's being accomplished. And 
to me, I think that's a possibility, a strong possibility of why she went there in the first place, that she wanted to be with him. And I don't think it was just a Victorian convention, you know, I will be with you for eternity. I don't think it was, because she's talking about it and picturing herself there, and, and she says she sees him reaching out to her. So, yeah, I think, I think that's what I'm trying to suggest in the book without actually saying it, because I think it's one of those things where we kind of have to let her tell us about it. Or cryptically allude to it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of a magical quality to it, because back where she was brought up on the Isle of Skye, there is a, tra- you know, a cultural tradition of fairy legends, and yeah. she seems to be partial to that and to take them seriously. Yeah, I think, I think she is, for whatever reason, whether it's illness or heritage or just belief, I think she really gives credence to the supernatural world interacting with our world. And there's a bunch of times she goes to a psychic meeting, she talks about, and there's plenty of places in Africa where this happens, where they start talking about magical creatures, and there's even fairy creatures in Africa. And and the book begins with her sister telling her the story of the fairy flag, which is this beautiful story of her clan, Clan MacLeod, being gifted a magical flag from the fairy world. So I think she walked that line. And I don't know why, or maybe there doesn't need to be a reason why. And that's why I, I kept it cryptic, because I think that's where it's more interesting and more exciting. Where is it real or is it not? Right on the edge of things. But I agree. I think she was very much part and parcel of that world of magic being part of it. And I would love for you to tell at least one of the magical stories that they encounter in Africa, because there was at least one or two stories that that they were not able to dismiss as mere sleight of hand. Yeah, oh yeah. Because when she goes to Africa, because she kind of has the affinity for the supernatural, whether as a story or whether as something that can happen to you, she's able to appreciate the stuff they go through, whereas maybe a more um, ardent scientist like Boyd might dismiss it. One of The one that gets me, and there's a lot that they come across, and I love the African magic stories and the magic men and the shaman. It's just so interesting because it's so different from what I grew up with. There's one story where they go to a gathering, and in the gatherings, you know, people would form a circle or, or different performers would come up and do their thing and you had people riding horseback and oh I just thought of another magical story but I still like this one the best. You can a man, tell both if you want. <laughs> <laughs> a man comes out and he starts dancing and he's dressed like a jester or like a fool and they laugh at him a little bit and he does some other stuff Olive finds kind of gross. And it, it's very funny because she does have a slight Victorian sensibility about the way she approaches some of the stuff she sees. And she's very funny, too, I think. Very dry humor. 
But anyway, this man is dancing, and he pulls out knives, and he starts cutting himself. And they're watching him in horror, saying, you know, what is he doing? And he does a, a big cut across himself, and they watch it disappear, that it heals. And she can't believe what she's seeing. And she tries to inspect the knife and, and see what it's doing, but there's no, there's no explanation. She tries all these different ways to explain how he could do this, and all they have is magic. And the other one I'll say quick is when they meet the great Garanga, that he has a great procession through the road, and they have to sit and watch it. They get their little chairs out and watch this great procession. It, it kind of reminds me of a Fourth of July parade or Memorial Day parade. And all these people go by paying tribute to the great Garanga, and then there's a woman head to toe in black on a horse and she's totally immobile and Olive is obsessed with her and she's just staring at her and she's like who is this and their French friend they have they have different escorts throughout their journey just to make sure they're not going off the path says this is the black Magira she is the chief's mother and then he says she has been dead for five years and Olive freezes, you know, because she's thinking, what am I looking at? What is this thing on the horse? And then at that exact moment, the woman, the Magira, turns her head and looks at Olive. And this is this is in her diary, and when I read it, I froze. And, and she freezes, too. She says, you know, what supernatural being is this? And it turns out that this could be explained, but it's still, it still, it has a great hold over her, this being. It turns out one of the traditions of the tribe is that someone will dress, and this was a man, would dress up in the clothes of the chief's dead mother and would be her. Not only act like her, but he had all the political powers of her, and he was second only to the chief himself in power. And Olive is kind of scared of her the whole trip. And, and it's just really, you know, again, this one is explained, but it still has a very supernatural quality to it that's hard to shake for. I'm wondering, do you have time to tell the fairy flag story? Because I think that's really fascinating because it actually extends over a period of a few hundred years up until the Second World War. And, and it has... It seems to have some credence within British culture. Oh, yeah. No, I'd be happy to. Um, I, so I, I put the fairy flag story. It's the first story in the book, and it's also kind of the last, because I wanted to have this idea of something, like you said before, something magical. Because what I think Olive finds in Africa is absolutely something magical. And I don't think it's something you can put completely in the realm of science or completely in the realm of magic, it's something in between. And it's all these things she goes through and, and love and everything else. So the fairy flag, the kind of condensed version is that there was uh, the chief of Clan MacLeod was walking through his fields and, and, and found a, a bridge and went through the bridge and he entered the fairy world. And, you know, that island in particular has a really deep, heritage of fairy stuff, uh, fairy legends. And in the fairy kingdom, he, of course, fell in love with the fairy princess. But the fairy king did not like that. 
so they wanted to get married, and he said, you can't get married, but we'll allow, he would allow something called a hand fast, which was news to me, where they could act like they were married for a year in the real world, but then she would have to go back. So they said, okay, we'll figure out something later. So they came back to the Isle of Skye, and they lived as husband and wife in a perfect year of wedded bliss, they say. And at the end of it, they had a child, a boy. And when the year was over, she had to, his mother had to go across the bridge and enter the fairy kingdom, never to return. There was no way around it. The fairy king's magic was too great. So left with his boy, the father returned to his castle, and he tried to, he had a birthday party, he tried to drown out his sorrows and, and drink, and his young son was upstairs in a room where Olive lived, and he heard the boy crying, and he rushed up and saw his wife, his fairy wife, helping the child to stop crying, and she looked at him, and she disappeared, and he knew she would never, ever come back. And she had told him before she left, you know, just take care of my boy. If he cries, I know I will hear him in the other world. And she left him a gift, and it was a blanket, and it was a white silken blanket with little red fairy stars on it. And the father raised his son, and years went on. They put the blanket away. And at one point, his son, who was now grown, came back to the father and said, you know, I had a dream about the blanket I was given as a child. They were under attack, by the way. I should have said that. And he said, I had a dream about this blanket I was given as a child. It is not a blanket, he said. It is a flag. He said, it is a mighty fairy gift. And he said, if we wave it, the fairies will help us, but we can only wave it three times. And they were under attack by their enemies, and he waved the flag, and the fairy armies rose out of the ether and defeated their enemies. Many hundreds of years later, there was a great blight that had killed all the livestock, and they found the flag again, and they waved it, and everything was healed, and the island and the clan was saved. So there's only one wave left and the flag is real and if you go to the castle they have it right there and at the end of the book i tell the story about how olive's sister became a very famous and very accomplished and amazing chief of the clan which is a big deal it's a big title and when she was chief there was a fire in the castle and they tried to get everything out and somehow they got the flag out and there are stories that you know when the men of, and women of the village carried the flag out, the fires parted. The flames gave way so it could go. And what Dame Flora, that was Olive's sister, what she did is she offered, um, this was during World War II, she offered to Churchill himself. She said, I will wave this flag off the cliffs of Dover if you think it would help. And she was serious. And he said, no, no, we're not there. We're not there yet. But what she did do is she cut out little squares of it and mailed it to Scottish airmen, which were, you know, had a great history in the, um, in the skies during World War II. And so if you see the flag today, it has all these little things cut out. But they said that doesn't count as the third wave. So it's still there today. And the kind of last story is that Olive's father went to have it appraised in London and have it dated and, you know, where did it come from? Because there's all sorts of stories. And my story 
when I tell is just one of about 15 different versions of it. It's mythology, right? Um, and he took it to this very famous person, and they said, well, you know, this is from the Middle East, the silk. Um, it had been brought back in a crusade. And that's another reason I wanted to tell this story, because the book ends, too, with what happens in Darfur, that there's also conquest and colonialism and death as part of all this. And her father scoffs, and he says, no, no, we, we got it from a fairy king. And the guy at the British Museum says, oh, yes, yes, of course he did. So it, it crosses that line, what is real, what's a story, and what's not. What are the facts? And that's where I want Olive's story, because I think that's what her story is. It's like there are facts of her story, but there's what you know she went through in her own life to kind of mix that all up and make it something magical. Mm. Well, Brad, Rick, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you about all of this. Oh, it's been, it's been mine. It's a real treat. Brad Ricca is an award-winning writer and the author of this book we've been talking about, Olive the Lionheart, Lost Love, Imperial Spies, and One Woman's Journey into the Heart of Africa. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Oh.